Amen. It is good to sing and worship the Lord. Let's pray as we approach His Word together this morning. Lord, we, we simply want to hear Your voice. So we pray that You would speak to us, Lord, through Your Word, through Your servant. I pray that what is spoken will be true and faithful and accurate. And anything that is not, I pray that we would not even hear it. And I pray that we'd have hearts that are receptive to Your truth. And that we would live in response grateful lives for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the world or Christ? Probably an easy question for us to answer, out loud at least, but maybe not so easy in the quiet of our hearts especially as we see the enticements and the temptations all around, especially as we conduct our lives daily. My own kingdom and honor or God's honor? The pursuit of achievement or the pursuit of worship? We can't answer too quickly because our lives will tell us what we really think, won't they? Hope in this life or focus on eternity? Trust in my own abilities or trust in God? These are all similar questions that should cause us to reflect and consider there have always only been two paths. Last week we looked at Cain's worship problem, if you remember. He worshiped self instead of God. He was led by emotions rather than the truth. That's why he got so angry when his offering wasn't accepted and Abel's was. That's why he couldn't heed the warning that God so graciously gave him where he said, look, sin is crouching at the door. You need to overcome it. And, and that's why he ended up murdering instead of pleading for mercy. This morning, we return to Genesis chapter 4, but this time, not only to look at Cain, but also his progeny, his descendants. Now, you know the saying, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? Well, we're going to see that Cain's self-worship lives on and amplifies in the generations to come. Sin is like that. It gets worse and worse. We said last week, sin doesn't evolve upward, it devolves and so the world without God heads toward destruction. But there's another way. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. Please open up your Bibles. There's some under the chair in front of you if you don't have one with you. And open up to Genesis 4. And please keep the Bibles open as we work our way through the text. <coughs> Genesis 4, starting at verse 17. I guess I'll say that if you are thinking of a name for your children, this is one of those passages you may find a name. You'll see why I say that. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. 
To Enoch was born, born Erod, and Erod fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zilah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zila also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Amen? May God bless the reading of His holy word. I want you to notice two lines and two ways to live here in this passage. Let's start with the first one. The line of Cain, or the line of godlessness. Look at verse 17. The first thing that we notice in verse 17 is that God is both gracious and faithful. How do we see that? He's gracious because life continues. The, the regular pattern, though disrupted by sin, is graciously allowed to continue by God. Notice it. Just like Adam knew his wife Eve, and they bore Cain, Cain knows his wife, and they have a son. Life goes on, like we talked about last week. But there's more. I want you to notice this too. We also see that God is faithful to his promise to Cain that no one would harm him. Remember, Cain was going to be a fugitive. He was going to be a wanderer. But here we see that he does not die. He's not hunted down like he thought he would be. Though he's cast out of the presence of God, the mark of God's protection is there just like God said. So you would think that God's grace and faithfulness might be acknowledged by Cain, even appreciated. But look at verse 17 because it continues. What else do we see? Cain builds a city. Maybe you read that and you think, no big deal. But isn't it? What was God's punishment of Cain? He was supposed to be a fugitive and a wanderer, but immediately we see Cain wants to set up shop. And, and not just that, he builds a city, as many point out, in defiance of the Lord. Cities in Scripture often connote the gathering of evil people. You think of the story of the Tower of Babel that we're going to get to soon. One author put it this way, he said, look, if individual sinners are a problem, what happens when sinners congregate together? The sin problem is intensified, not solved. I think that's true right here. But we're redeemed, it's okay, and forgiven. What is Cain doing, though, by building a city? Look at the text. One author suggests that it is, quote, 
an attempt to provide security for himself. A security he is not sure that God's mark guarantees. That's interesting. And I think that it's accurate. He builds a city to protect himself, to find some sort of safe haven, to create a fortress, so to speak, for himself, to minimize surrounding threats, even though, as others acknowledge, it is in direct disobedience to God. Here's what Cain is thinking. How do I save my own hide? How do I protect myself? Yeah, yeah, God has said he's got his mark on me, but how can I protect myself further? How often we like to hedge our bets to reduce risks. We, we claim to trust the Lord, but then we find greater security in other things, like our own planning, our own preparation, our own methods. Yes, Lord, I trust you, but really what makes me confident is my 401k, my coming inheritance, my good business savvy. Yes, I trust the Lord, but my real comfort comes from the statistics that tell me that the disease I'm fighting will likely be treatable. Now look, I'm not saying that planning is bad, nor that statistics are bad, nor that medicine is bad, or any such thing. I'm asking us to consider what our greatest hope is in and where our trust really lies. We might condemn Cain for building a city, but sometimes we live a lot like him. Cain is living outside of God's presence, and he's trying to find security and hope, and really, he's trying to find life without God. That's his quest. But there's more here. Cain not only builds a city, but notice this, he names the city after his son, Enoch. That's how Cain's name and his kingdom are going to continue. It's his attempt at permanence. His desire to make a name for himself, to make a name for his family. Do you see the, the pattern and the focus here with Cain? This is life without God. One author said this is a society away from God. This is what it looks like. Everyone trying to make a name for himself. Everyone trying to find security and success on our own. Everyone vying for power. What's a society away from God look like? Look at verse 19. For one thing, Lamech, Cain's great, great, great grandson, he shows that like his great, great, great grandfather, he couldn't care less about God's word or his design. Lamech disdains the institution of marriage and the idea of one man and one woman and a one flesh union that God created for us. He doesn't care about God's design that we saw in Genesis 2. What does he do? He takes for himself two wives. And so matter of fact, but really a matter of sin. We'll come back to this. Now, society away from God isn't ever completely away from God, not at least on this earth. Now, what do I mean is this. Remember, we already said that God's grace was present there. And what we're talking about is what we call His common grace. Not His saving grace, but His common grace, right? The sun shines on them. The, the rain falls on them. Life goes on. And they even find certain kinds of success and progress. Look at verses 20 through 22. Do you notice what's going on there? 
Cain's line brings about some very interesting and important technological advancements, innovations. Jabal in husbandry, right? Working with the cattle and the animals. Jubal in music. Tubal Cain in metalworks, and likely implied by what's said there is the development of tools and even weaponry. Lamech's line sees quite a bit of what scholars call enhancements and refinements. In some ways, this should be fo- uh, expected because that's their focus, this earth, making life here as comfortable and permanent as possible. They need to find ways to survive and thrive on their own. Since they're away from God, they spend their time and effort on everything that's under the sun to make their own ways. Remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They're trying to create meaning for themselves. This is one way to do it. Here's the dilemma. And I hope you can see it here in the text. All of the advancement, all of the technological growth, all of the human prosperity, and yet none of that could change the human heart and defeat the problem of sin, which is their real problem. As one author put it, he says, the flowering of culture and invention does not restrain the escalation of sin. Another author said it like this. He said, Cain's family is a microcosm. Its pattern of technical, <coughs> excuse me, technical prowess and moral failure is that of humanity. That statement reminded me of that very uh, important theological line from the movie Aladdin. Phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. You have all this power, all this innovation, but to what avail? Worthless. You know, prior to World War I, there was a sense in which humanity's hope was put in human ingenuity and growth and progress and science. But then it became clear that technological growth just meant more powerful weapons for sinners to harm each other with. The issue was the heart, and our technology can't change that. I want you to notice how bad it gets. Look at verses 23 and 24. Maybe it's because of the metal work of his son that Lamech has great weapons, and so he puts his trust in those or something. Maybe not. Here's what we find. Lamech is celebrating his own murderous heart. Do you you see it? Lamech calls his wives to attention, which I think is... Interesting and condescending, but he says, listen to my voice. Mark my words in one translation. Listen, Lamech's wives. I've killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. He's bragging. You know, the basic sense of justice in the ancient world, and even biblically, was an eye for an eye and what? A tooth for a tooth. Lamech is admitting here boldly, brazenly, that he did far worse than what was done to him. He acted disproportionately, excessively, unjustly, and he's bragging about it. This man wounded or struck this man wounded or struck him, and he responded with a mortal blow. In fact, it is highlighted that the person he killed is a young man. That language likely refers to someone who's a teenager. And he celebrates it. And he calls his wives to do the same. 
You see, it seems that part of what we see in this line of godlessness is that it can have all sorts of success in temporary things, but has no power to change the most important aspect of human life, the human heart. In fact, we see this all the time played out in various ways. Husbands who are great businessmen make millions of dollars, build corporations, invent amazing innovations, yet their families fall apart, their wives and children resent them. (coughs) They are mean and selfish and celebrate that part of themselves. In other cases, we see great technological advancements that make bold promises of huge benefits to society, and then those very advancements are used to destroy and cut down instead of build, to undermine instead of edify. Look back at verse 24. Here Lamech gloats. He takes God's promise to protect Cain. In the words of one author, as a badge of honor for Cain rather than a merciful provision by God for a shameful criminal. He doesn't see it as God's grace. He sees it as simply Cain's power. In fact, I think that Lamech, by making this claim about the sevenfold vengeance promised for Cain and making it 77-fold for himself, I think he's rejecting even the need for God. He's celebrating his own sin, his own power, using of the law and government for himself. God never made a promise like that to Lamech. That's life away from God. So with Lamech, we see, yes, God's common grace in allowing all sorts of development through his family, but we also see no sanctity of marriage, no sanctity of life, and no awareness of the holiness of God which will be their demise. No humility, no no sense of purpose outside of self. No sense of responsibility outside of growing their own kingdoms. That's life away from God. That's Cain's line. But then come verses 25 and 26. Do you see those there? A different line. We back up to what happens when Adam and Eve, with Adam and Eve after Cain kills Abel. The line of Seth. The line of the godly. Adam and Eve have another son. This time they name him Seth. That sounds like the word for appointed. God appointed him to replace Abel. Don't miss this. I hope your Bibles are open. Go back to chapter 4, verse 1. It's not going to be up there. Note what Eve said when Cain was born. She said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She was excited that a man was born, excited that creation would continue. She was excited that though they had sinned, there would still be life. But look at verse 25. What does she say there? God has appointed for me another, not a man, offspring, the word seed, instead of Abel. You see the difference? Earlier, that very language of seed or offspring was used in chapter 3 when God made the promise of the seed of the woman who would defeat the serpent. It was God's answer to sin. It was God's answer to sinful rebellion. 
It was his promise of a way of salvation for humanity. After Cain's murder of Abel, Eve's mind is no longer focused on simply the continuation of life and creation, but the redemption of creation. She isn't thinking about a man, but the seed, because she seems to realize that after Abel's murder, just how big a problem sin is. It's death. It isn't enough that man continue in this world. There's something wrong, something in need of healing, in need of saving. Seth represents hope that that seed will come. He represents God's intervention and God's provision. And verse 26 points us further in that direction. Seth has a son, and at that time people began to do what? Do you see it? Call upon the name of the Lord. Meredith Klein writes, in contrast to the Canaanites' passion for the name of man, a remnant community raised the banner of God's name, confessing the Lord as their father and protector. Look briefly at chapter 5. Just glance at it. There we find Adam's line, Seth. And what do we see? Verse 21 in chapter 5, Seth's great, 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 grandson Enoch and here's what we're told of him in verse 24 Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him Lamech is the same number of generations after Cain as Enoch is after Seth do you see the difference and not only that but later in Seth's line there is a Lamech of their own and he knows the need this world had for God's provision and his hand, and he named his own son Noah, which sounds like the word for rest or relief, hoping in God that he would bring such relief. Seth's line calls upon the name of the Lord and finds their life fundamentally grounded in their relationship with him. They too live and grow in the world but they do not live away from God, but in close relation to God. They have the seed of the promise in mind and as their hope. Eternity is on their minds and not simply temporary things. So let's step back. Which line do our lives reflect? That's a question. Beloved, if you're a Christian, you are in Christ. And you belong to the line of promise. That's reality. We are, in a sense, as Christians, in Seth's line. Seth's line is the line of Christ. It, it points to the seed who was going to come. The seed that would do the work that Adam couldn't do. He would be our champion to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us. And with that promise in mind, the saints of the Old Testament lived by faith and with hope. And so do we. But when we reflect on a passage like this one, we're forced to ask ourselves an important question about the way we are living. Do our lives look more like the line of Cain or the line of Seth? Or are we more about the world or about worship? 
if our most passionate pursuits are this worldly, if our greatest desires are all about building our own lives and our own comforts and our own kingdoms, then our lives are in line with Cain. If we find that we put more stock in planning for our retirement on earth than storing up treasures in heaven, we're living as though we are away from God, not in relation to God. Seth's Enoch walked with God and was taken to be with him. Cain's Lamech didn't have time nor space in his life for God. And guess what? Everything he lived for stayed behind. Sure, Lamech's line saw innovation and inventions and probably wealth, but at what cost? See, beloved, today we are really distracted by things of this world even if they aren't necessarily immoral. We know the basics of such things. We, we look like Cain's line when we're spending more time on social media than interacting with brothers and sisters in need. We're looking more like Cain's line when we're more likely to plan our next vacation than sacrificially plan our next oppor- opportunity to serve Christ. We're more like Cain's line when we've spent more time renovating our homes and sharing the gospel. We're more like Cain's line when more important to us is our earning than our helping and serving. When we're too tired to worship, something's amiss. Something of our priorities are out of whack. If worship is a compartment of our lives, rather than the whole from which every other desire and passion flows, we're living less than what we are called to and called for. And beloved, like Paul said to those he was writing to, that's not how we learned Christ, is it? That's not who you are, O Christian. If we are those who have trusted in the good news of the gospel, we're no longer of Cain's line no longer of the world, no longer worshipers of self. So let's stop living like it. And instead, let us with grateful hearts live for Christ who so freely rescued us from our own self-worship. Can I get a little more specific? We should have an overflow both of resources and people ready to serve every time a need or ministry opportunity arises in this church. We should have to turn volunteers away in this church. Why? Because I know you. And you love Jesus. And more importantly, Jesus has loved you and given himself for you. Paul often reminded his people, you are in Christ, a new creation. Now live like it. Because of what he has already done for you and in you, let us respond with thanksgiving and follow the line of Seth, which is the line of Christ the Savior, the line of grace, the line of hope. He would rescue his people and change them forever. We are His people. Let's live like it.
for His glory and by His grace. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come before You and we're just grateful for Your Word. We get to cover things that we would never plan to cover on our own, but Your Word is so good, so deep, so challenging. It is so easy for us to fall into Cain's way, Lamech's way. It's so easy to think and live as though all there is is what's under the sun. But we know, Lord, because you've opened our hearts and minds and eyes, we know there is so much more. And so you give to us the line of Seth, not just as an example to us, but really as our only hope. Not Seth and not his son or grandson, but the seed that would come. Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, who would live and die and rise in our place, who gives to us His life and righteousness and takes from us our sins. And now you sanctify us, Lord. Set us apart to look like the line of your seed, to live for your glory now and forever until the day that we meet you face to face. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.